All right, please take your Bible with me this evening and turn to Luke 16. Luke 16 in your Bible. Looking at verses 14 through 18 this evening, they which justify themselves. Title of the message. Last week when we were together, we considered Jesus' teaching that today matters. This life matters. Jesus told his disciples in verse 13, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. At any given time, we're either serving God or we're serving something else, self, culture, an idol. Now, Jesus was saying these words to his disciples as an application to his parable, the parable that we call the parable of the unjust steward. Those words were for his disciples to hear in order that his disciples would recognize just how important it is that we, as followers of Christ, maintain consistent, constant vigilance and determination to faithfully serve and obey our Lord. That it really matters because there's coming a day when we will go to heaven, when we will have eternal rewards. And if we're thinking, even if we have the wisdom of that unjust servant in this earth, we will recognize that we need to be laying up reward in heaven and that this life matters for the life to come. But you know, it wasn't just Jesus's disciples that were there on that day, listening to Jesus's teaching, listening to that parable, and then hearing these words of Jesus, ye cannot serve God and Mammon, the Pharisees heard these words on that day as well, and they didn't like him very much. So it is that in today's text, and as we get into next week, uh, in, in, in one way, by, by one reckoning, you could kind of call this a part one and next week a part two, because the two passages are inextricably linked uh, in the context. There's not even really a division between them. Uh, there's just too much content for me to get them both today. However, um, we're, we're going to look over these next two weeks at Jesus's message to the Pharisees, and he begins by saying this in verse 14 of Luke 16. The Bible says, uh, oh, excuse me, he doesn't say anything. Uh, the Bible says in verse 14, and the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. Within our context, the Pharisees hear the teaching of Jesus and the Bible says they deride him for his words that in the Greek literally meaning to sneer at or to scoff at. Uh, we have several truths that are established immediately in this verse. First, we learn why the Pharisees disagree with the teachings of Jesus. They disagree with the teachings of Jesus because the Bible says they were covetous. When a proud person has his way of life challenged, uh, he can react in, in one of several different ways. Uh, some get angry and they reject you. They hate you. They dislike you for what you are saying because they feel judged by your obedience. They feel judged by your words. Um, we talked about this this morning. We're going to talk about it more this evening. The concept of truth. When you speak truth, the people that are, are not 
living truth by nature get upset to hear the truth. They feel like you're judging them. You're not judging them. You're just saying what is true. I've had many people that have come and gone from this church and they've told me it's because they feel like when I'm standing up here, I'm, I'm, I'm judging that, that we are judging uh, because they feel conviction when they sit under the preaching. And when they sit under the preaching, they feel conviction and they don't know what to do with that conviction. They haven't interpreted that conviction as the Holy Spirit telling them there's something wrong in their lives. They, they instead interpret that conviction as there's something wrong in this church because people don't sit under conviction anymore. So some get angry at you. They reject you. They dislike you. Some get annoyed and avoid you. They'll just say, well, I don't like that person. I'm just going to avoid that person because I don't want to hear what they have to say. Some are really interested in the idea, but then they certainly don't want the submission or obedience. So they listen and they say, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yep, that's true. That's true. That's true. But they never actually do anything about it. And some get, if I can use the word snarky, they make fun of you as a defense against the truth. And you're going to find this one quite regularly. As a matter of fact, if you've ever shared the gospel with a group of people, perhaps you've seen this happen, where you're sharing the gospel with a group of people and maybe one particular person is actually interested. They're engaged. They want to listen. And then the rest of the group starts to make fun of that person or starts to make fun of you, starts to make fun of what you're saying. And you can see that person get lost. You can see them drifting as they are wrestling between what the what what, what my friends are saying and how they're feeling and, and, and wanting to look cool and wanting to be normal and, and what, what they're hearing in the truth and recognizing that there's something here that they need or something here that they want. And they're tugged and, and, and you, can, you can see the battle raging within them because these people are making fun of you and they're making fun of them. And they make fun of the person listening in order to shame the person into not listening anymore. And they make fun of you in an attempt to shame you into silence. And this brings us to our second idea of what pride compelled these Pharisees to do. They sneered at him. Often in this life, those who reject you for your obedience to God and righteousness will seek to silence you by making fun of you. They will paint your lifestyle, your belief system, your words as silly or uninformed or misguided. They'll call you all sorts of adjectives, bigoted and Name it. You can, you can fill in the blank there. They'll call you all sorts of things because you believe something they don't and they don't like what you believe and they want you to stop it or at least not to mention it out loud. They try to pressure you and they try to pressure others to reject you and pressure you to be quiet. And this is what they do in this instance. This is what the Pharisees are doing here. They scoff and they sneer. They deride Jesus. They deride his message, likely hoping that it will somehow silence him or at least it will discourage those who are listening from listening. And Jesus responds to them beginning in verse 15. We'll only focus on the beginning of Jesus's response. As I mentioned this evening, verses 15, 16, 17, 18. Next week, we'll continue in verses 19 through 31 uh, and, and finish that off together. But verse 15, Jesus says this. He said unto them, ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Jesus immediately gets right to the heart of the issue here. These men wanted to justify their actions before men. They didn't actually care what God thought. 
They only cared what the people around them thought. They wanted validation before men and saw the opinions of men as the end-all be-all of their lives. They had the guise of godliness. They had the morality of, of godliness. They had all of these, the, the, the framework of godliness, the religious aspects of godliness in place, but they had all of that in place so that they could impress the people around them. So that they could come into the synagogue and the people would look at them and say, wow, that's a really godly person. They were seeking to justify themselves before men. What dictated whether or not they actually liked something, actually agreed with something, actually did something, actually had any motivation to do something was whether or not somebody seeing it would justify them, would validate them, would make them feel godly. They had plenty of religious words, plenty of moral actions, but they weren't doing what they were doing because of any love for the God of the Bible. They were doing what they were doing to justify themselves in the eyes of men. And those things, Jesus says, which are highly esteemed among men, all of those religious things, moral things, justifying yourself among men, all of those things which man finds really important, prestige and, and money and pride and all of those things, God really is not impressed. God's just not impressed. In the days of Samuel, God called the prophet to find the son of Jesse who would be the next king. Samuel looked over the sons and he saw the eldest, a man named Eliab, and he was a man of strength and he was a man of power. And Samuel says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. He saw all the physical manifestations of the king. By the way, Saul had those too, didn't he? Saul had those too. And so God says this to Samuel, reminds Samuel of something in verse 7. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. What man sees, esteem and reputation and wealth and strength, these are things which men esteem. These are the things which the Pharisees wanted because they wanted the praise of men. And these are the things that gain the praise of men. They wanted people to look at them and to like them and to feel good about them. They wanted the praise of men. They wanted people to think that they were really important. They wanted to feel really important. They wanted power among men, influence in Rome, influence in Israel. And for these things, they were willing to give up honor before God. For these things, pride, earthly honor, reputation, for these things they were willing to give up truth. They valued the carnal over the spiritual. And when the spiritual threatened the carnal, remember what Jesus said in verse 13. This is the point. This is where this is coming from. When the spiritual threatened the carnal, they willingly yielded the spiritual in order to maintain the carnal. Because they served mammon, not God. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the context, right? So Jesus was teaching this to his disciples. And now as the, as, as the Pharisees deride him, he says, case in point. Case in point. Here you are and you are serving mammon. 
and you are they which justify themselves and you love mammon and you serve mammon, which means you can't serve God, which means you aren't serving God. Thank you, Jesus might say, for proving my point. They followed their God, but their God wasn't the God of the Bible, the God of truth, because when confronted with the principles of the God of truth, they scoffed at him. They sneered at his principles because their God was under attack. And so they did what any man does when his God is under attack. They fight for their God. And of course, they fought for their God against the true and living God. Jesus continues in verse 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. The law and the prophets ended with John. He was the final Old Testament prophet. Now, we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the New Testament, but really, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John open up into an Old Testament world with a prophet who is an Old Testament prophet. That would be John the Baptist. And then it transitions in Jesus to the New Testament, to the New Covenant which is in his blood. Since this time, Jesus came preaching the advent of a very new thing to which all the law and the prophets pointed, the kingdom of God. It had come in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. The kingdom of God was among them. The kingdom of God was walking among them. The kingdom of God had arrived. But men didn't want the kingdom of God as God wanted it, as God intended it, as the law and the prophets foretold of it, they wanted the kingdom of God as they saw it, as they intended it, as their interpretation of the kingdom of God interpreted it. And so every man, Jesus says, presses into the kingdom. Every man tries to make the kingdom what they want it to be. That word presseth there in our King James literally means to use force or to inflict violence. Men do violence to the concept of the kingdom of God because they don't like what the kingdom of God is. So they still call it the kingdom of God because they want to think that they're following God and they want to think they're serving God, but they are redefining the kingdom of God and making it in the image of whatever God it happens to be that they have. And so we see so many different religious systems. Uh, denominations, uh, religions as a whole, uh, non-religions that are actually religions, uh, even people making government their, 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 their concept of the kingdom of God. People take the kingdom of God and they say, I like the idea of the kingdom of God, but I don't like it as God presents it, so I'm going to keep the name kingdom of God, and then I'm going to press into it. I'm going to forcibly, by violence, inflict violence upon what God has envisioned the kingdom of God to be, what God declares the kingdom of God to be, and I'm going to erect a, the, the kingdom of God in my own image. Jesus says, that's what you're doing, Pharisees. You think you're serving the kingdom of God, but you have inflicted violence upon the term, and you have a kingdom of God that is not the kingdom that God will establish. In wanting to justify themselves, they want the kingdom of God to be in their image. And so they do violence to the kingdom of God in the name of their own God. And this is the legacy of the unbeliever all the way back to Adam, folks. Mankind has sought the kingdom of God by force. And the way they have done it is by twisting the kingdom of God to make it what they want it to be. But here's the thing about that. It doesn't work. Indeed, it cannot work. Why, pastor? Why can't it work? Because God is God. Jesus says here, since the beginning, you've had the law and the prophets and the law and the prophets have preached the kingdom of God and you didn't like it. So you perverted the law and you perverted the prophets to twist the kingdom of God, to make the kingdom of God what you want it to be. But notice what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. He says, you can do whatever you want 
You can press into the kingdom of God however you want. You can inflict injury and violence upon the kingdom of God however you want, but it's not going to change the kingdom of God. It doesn't change truth. Truth is truth. We learned about it this morning, didn't we? That truth is reality. And no matter what people want to believe, truth is truth. Everything written from Genesis 1-1 to the words of John the Baptist will come to pass exactly as God intended it, not how you understand it. This is why it's so important that we seek the true meaning of the Bible, that we don't just say, well, what does the Bible mean to me? And we sit around in our little uh, Bible study group and, and you read a passage and then you say, okay, what does this passage mean to me? Well, this passage means to me that I need to be kind. And another person says, well, this passage means to me that uh, God is kind to us. And well, this passage means to me that other people should be kind to me. Okay, well, that's all fine, but what does God mean when he wrote it? Because that's what matters. If we're not finding out what God means, then we could get ourselves into the same situation as these Pharisees. A situation where we have pressed our understanding into the kingdom of God, and when the kingdom of God comes, it just doesn't say what we think it says. Because we have imposed our... It doesn't matter what you think the Bible means. It matters what God intended to write. And it matters that we understand it the way God intended us to know it, to understand it. God's kingdom cannot fail. His purposes cannot fail. God cannot fail. If he can fail, then he is not God, which means his kingdom will come to pass exactly as he has designated it, which means we are either on his side and get into his kingdom or we're not on his side. And regardless of what we thought the kingdom meant, if we don't get it right, it's not going to change what the kingdom is. It's only going to change where we stand in relation to the kingdom. So we need to get into God's path because no amount of violence is going to thwart his purposes. And if we, in our desire to justify ourselves, pervert the kingdom of God to make it something that it isn't or to take away from it something that it is, we're only fooling ourselves. It's God's kingdom and it runs by God's rules. And we're either with him by his rules or we are against him. And Jesus says it will be more likely that all heaven and earth will dissolve away will pass away than it is for any even small minutia of the law of God, of the word of God, of the law and the prophets to fail. Jesus then makes a statement that seems startlingly out of place. And this, is, this will be where we end this evening in our exposition. He says, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. What? I mean, I know what it's saying, but why is it here? If you look farther in the context, the, the, the subsequent context has absolutely nothing to do with divorce and remarriage or marriage at all. If you look previous in the context, that has nothing to do with divorce and remarriage. Why is this here? Well, Jesus is illustrating his point here, and he uses divorce to do it. He's not actually teaching on marriage and divorce in this context. He does that in Matthew 19. He's using the standard of the law as understood in the law and the prophets to make a point about the spiritual state of the Pharisees. Jesus establishes God's perspective on marriage and divorce. This is something that uh, would have been understood not just by him, but by the Pharisees. It would have been something they could relate to. They knew the law. They knew what the law said about marriage and divorce. He says, whosoever puts away his wife and marries another woman is an adulterer. Likewise, the man who marries the woman who is divorced from her husband is also an adulterer. He says those things. He, makes, uh, he, he just sets out what the law says. 
Israel is often pictured in the Bible as a bride of Jehovah, in fact, the disobedient bride of Jehovah. The, the, the church is pictured in the scriptures as the bride of Christ. Israel is pictured in the scriptures as the bride of Jehovah, of God the Father. In Ezekiel 16, we see this picture. Hosea 3, we see this picture. Uh, we, we, we could me- mention many places where we see this picture of Israel as a bride. Ironically and interestingly, in, in all of these cases, are, they are seen as a disobedient and adulterous bride. Jesus tells the Pharisees then that for them to put away the teachings of the kingdom of God and to bind themselves to their false system is them committing spiritual adultery. That's what he's telling them here. That's why uh, marriage and divorce just came into this context. Jesus says, I am married to Israel. And what Israel has done is you have put me away. You have adulterated against me with another God. You're committing spiritual adultery. They're spiritual adulterers pursuing a false kingdom of unfaithfulness to God. And for the Pharisees, who were men of utmost legal purity, this illustration would have been deeply reproachful to them. But this is what Jesus is saying here. He's telling the Pharisees that they may clean themselves up on the outside. They may have a wife of, uh, of, of many years and have been faithful. They may have all the religious and moral trappings of a follower of God, but they are doing violence to the kingdom of God. They have put God away and married another, and they are spiritual adulterers. That's what he's telling them here. That's why this finds its way into the context here, I believe. Now, this is as far as our exposition will take us this evening. And as we apply today, I'd like to do so in two distinct contexts. There's an elephant in the room here. I only preach things, typically speaking. I, I do um, do topical sermons and topical series from time to time, generally, however, inspired by the text that we're in. But I, I typically only bring things up when the Bible brings them up. And I do that for this reason. I, I don't know what God wants you to hear except that I know he wants you to hear the Bible. And so I do this every week. My strategy is that I'm going to teach you the Bible. I'm going to teach you the Bible. I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going to go through the Bible because here's what I know, that the Holy Spirit can take the Bible and apply it to your heart far more than he can take my opinions or my thoughts or my perception about what you need. And, and who am I thinking of, you or you or you? Which one of you needs what I'm going to preach next? Uh, and, and, and am I really going to single you out or you out or you out? I'm just going to preach the Bible. And so this is an opportunity to talk to you about what the Bible says about divorce. These don't come up every day. And even though the Bible is not, Jesus is not specifically teaching on divorce here, this is an opportunity and it's kind of the elephant in the room. So I'm going to start by, by, by telling you what the Bible says about divorce. We're going to use this as a bit of a springboard to talk about that. After that, I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you application on the actual passage. I was going to give you the application on the passage first and then talk divorce, but my fear there is that you would leave with all the divorce stuff in your mind and that you would completely forget about what the passage was actually saying. So I'm going to give you the divorce stuff first. And then after I give you the divorce stuff, then we're going to go back and we're going to do an entirely different application section, coming back to the passage and actually applying the passage at hand that can kind of bring you back in, remind you of the things that the passage is saying. And that's how we're going to do it. So let's begin with Divorce. Teachings on divorce have fallen out of favor in the church because it's become culturally acceptable in the church to get divorced, especially in the case of spousal unfaithfulness, which the church has taught for a generation is allowable. 
uh, as a reason to get divorced and generally speaking, remarried in God's word. This is not true. This is not what the Bible says, but that is what has been taught. The, the church has lost the culture war as it relates to the concept of divorce and remarriage. The culture has found its way into the church. The culture has pressed into the teaching on the church, has done violence to the teaching on the church, and now the church does not teach it anymore. But as we dig into this teaching, let me say very clearly and plainly, and, and please listen to this. My statements about divorce are not intended to be an attack on you individually. If you have been divorced, if you have been remarried, I'm not here to say that you're a bad person or an unbeliever or unusable to God or anything of the sort. You know, we all make choices and we all make sinful choices. And those choices always have consequences. We've talked about this so many times. Choices have consequences. It's not my job to meet out those consequences. It's not the church's job to meet out those consequences. God meets out consequences. The church is given the responsibility to rebuke those living in active sin who are, who claim to be believers. But it is not our job to judge the hearts of men for the sins that they have committed. Indeed, we know from Matthew 7 that the Bible tells us that with what judgment we judge, we shall be judged. This is not intended to be a judgment this evening. I'm not standing up here to judge you. I'm standing up here to tell you what the Bible says. And if you feel judged by what I'm saying, we talked about this a little bit early, or earlier about, about how people feel judged when you speak truth. If you feel judged by what I'm saying this evening as I speak on divorce and remarriage, may I suggest that you spend some time with God in earnest prayer to discern whether or not you have truly gotten back into fellowship with God, whether you have truly confessed and forsaken your sin in this area of life. Because if you have confessed it, then it's over between you and God. It's forgiven. He has removed it. The consequences remain. Consequences remain. God doesn't save us from the consequences of our sin. He saves us. He, God doesn't forgive us and so not give us consequences. He forgives us and then we have to live with the consequences of our sinful choices. That's a part of life. And if you're feeling condemnation when truth is pro proclaimed against a sin which you once committed, but for something for which God has already forgiven you, then it's because you're living under self-condemnation. You have not reckoned yourself forgiven and God does not want you there. If you are forgiven, then reckon yourself to be forgiven. Move on because God has. Yes, the consequences of your choices will still be there. Sometimes God may lessen certain consequences, give us grace in that area. Certainly, we're not talking about heaven or hell here, right? We're not, we're not saying, you know, God has definitely saved us from the, the eternal consequences of our sins. We know that. But God does not save us from the consequences of our sinful choices just because he releases us from the offense. But you are forgiven if you have confessed and forsaken your sin. If you've confessed your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you. Now you need to forsake it. And no man, no angel, no one, nothing should cause you to rest under judgment or condemnation for that for which God has freed you from already. If you have made mistakes in your past, welcome to the club. We all have. 
Know that God is a God of mercy. That God is always ready to forgive and to restore. He, he can use you still. He can use you still. But know that the church dare not ignore truth, dare not ignore doctrine, because many or some in its midst have offended that truth. To call sin, sin is not to judge you. It is just to tell you the world and the real world, the world in which we live. So let's learn what the Bible has to say about divorce. And we're going to talk about it somewhat sequentially. Since the first week of creation, God established the institution of marriage. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So the Bible says God created female and God created male, and God intended a female and a male to come together in a union of one man and one woman for life. How do we know all of this? Well, God established a principle here that a man would leave his father and his mother and would cleave unto his wife and they would become one flesh. How do we know that this is a principle, that it didn't just apply to Adam and Eve? Well, let me ask you a question. Did Adam and Eve have a father and mother? Not a trick question. They didn't. Adam and Eve were the first man, the first woman. They didn't have a father and mother. So if God presents before there are even such thing as children, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, it's because he's setting down a design principle. This is God setting down a design principle. This is how God has made it. And these two, when they come together, are made one flesh. How do we know that it's one man, one woman for life? How do we know that the Bible does not condone polygamy? How do we know the, that the Bible does not condone the idea of multiple wives, even though we see it happen. Even though we see it happen with David, we see it happen with, with uh, Abraham, we see it happen with, with uh, uh, many of the patriarchs and, and, and even godly men. How do we know that it's not God's design? Because God says that two, a man and a woman, they come together and they become one flesh. How do you become one flesh with multiple people? Can I just become, okay, I'm, I'm one flesh with my wife. Can I go out and get another flesh tomorrow and become one flesh with her? How can I be one flesh with two people? I can't be one flesh with two people. I am one flesh, which means my wife and I are bound. If I go and I find another woman, my wife and I are bound together into that. That So now there's there's two there. And so 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 is, is now my wife and I are both bound in one flesh to this other woman because I've chosen another woman? Or if my wife gets another man, are, am I now bound with my wife to that other man? It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's not doctrinal. It's not biblical. It's not practical. It's not logical. One man, one woman for life. We know this because two become one flesh. Now take special note uh, of, of this idea because these are all controversial topics all the way back to even just male and female, right? And this leads us to the most definitive teaching in the New Testament on the topic of divorce and remarriage found in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3, the Bible says this, The Pharisees also came unto him, that would be Jesus, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question, and really what they're doing with this question is they are attempting to back Jesus into a corner with a hard question, with a no-win situation. And take note, please take note of this, divorce is a hard question. 
I am not going to answer all of the scenarios tonight. As a matter of fact, we're going to skip an entire piece of this puzzle because number one, there's not enough time to teach on it. Number two, it's, it's more of a, a spurious, uh, kind of an exception idea. Um, it, it comes into play when we're talking about perhaps how God can use individuals that are divorced in the church and, and, uh, some of those things. But, but this thing, I mean, the, the, the topic can just blow up into a very complicated mess. Uh, it's a hard question. And, uh, so much so that I would be willing to, to say that in, in many cases, when, we talk about what should a person do in a situation of divorce. It needs to be case by case. You need to take the exact situation, the exact case, and you need to bring it before the word of God and you need to filter it through the word of God and see if anything comes out on the other side. And if, and if anything comes out on the other side, then you've got to figure out what to do with that because it's just such, it's a hard question. And that's again, why the church avoids it. Let's just forget about it. Let's just ignore it. Right? No doubt the Pharisees were attempting to put Jesus in a no-win situation because it's a controversial question, right? If you say one thing, you anger one group. If you say the opposite, you anger the other group. And so Jesus gets this question. And, and again, by the way, this is why the church avoids it. It's a no-win. No matter what I say, someone's going to leave in a huff, right? So they ask him, is it lawful to put away one's wife for every cause? For every cause. We'll come back to that and we'll, we'll see in just a little bit why it is that they said it this way, that every cause is allowed. And we'll find that it's deeply rooted in the concepts of the Old Testament law. But Jesus answers this way in verses four through six. And he answered and said unto them, have ye not read that they which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain, they two shall be one flesh. So Jesus quotes Genesis there, right? He quotes all the way back to that founding principle. Wherefore, they are no more twain, no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So Jesus appeals to that passage in Genesis 2, 21 to 24, that from the beginning God made them male and female, and that from the beginning God has ordained that a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they create a new family unit. They become one flesh. They are joined together in the eyes of God. And notice this last statement. They are no more two, no more twain, but one flesh. What Therefore, God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. End of answer. Jesus actually ends his answer right there. The, the end of his answer is, and the sum total of his answer is, when you're married, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's it. That's where the answer ends. For man to split what God has joined is to defy God's spiritual decree and to mar his design. Now take note that this is the end of his answer on the issue. Jesus has said everything that he intends to say about that question. Is it right to put away your wife for every cause? Jesus says, my answer is, it's not right to put away your wife for any cause. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And what oftentimes we do in our Christian circles is we take the fact that they that the Pharisees are going to ask a follow-up question, and then Jesus is going to specify some things in this follow-up up question that are even more deeply rooted in the law in, in Deuteronomy, and they impose what Jesus answers in the follow-up question upon their theology on divorce. That they say it's okay in certain circumstances because Jesus uses this one exception word. But wait a minute. 
When they ask their question, is it okay to divorce? Jesus' answer is only found in verses four through six. And his answer is this. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. That's the answer. End, end of answer. No, it's not okay. And as God's creation, it's not our right to tear apart what God has joined together. Then the Pharisees ask a follow-up question in verse 7, and they say this, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? So they are rooting this particular follow-up question as deeply as possible into the Mosaic law itself. This is the Mosaic law. This is not God's abiding decree. This is not God's eternal command. This is why did Moses in the law allow for this thing called divorce? And they're referencing here Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Let's read it together. The Bible says, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. But And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now we'll come back to that in a moment, but take note of the fact that in our context it has changed from what does God think about divorce to why God allowed Moses to write in the law a bill of divorcement. Why is a bill of divorcement, why did Moses have that penned into the law? Why, why is the law of Moses ha have a bill of divorcement in it? Why did God allow Moses to put a bill of divorcement into the law? Why did God ordain a bill of divorcement? However you want to ask the question uh, so that it doesn't sound misleading or it doesn't sound less or more than what it needs to be. Why is a bill of divorcement in the Mosaic law? Jesus then answers this question in verses 8 and 9. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. This, I marvel at this. As we look, what does he say next? He says, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. So Jesus says the reason why there's any provision for the divorce in the law at all is because of the hardness of men's hearts. So then we see this, this explanation of Deuteronomy 24 where Jesus is clarifying their original question. They ask him, is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason? See, here's what the rabbis had decided. The rabbis had decided that when Deuteronomy 24 talks about finding some uncleanness in your wife, that that uncleanness could be anything. That if she burnt dinner that night, if she didn't have your clothes set out in the morning, that that would be sufficient for you to say, I'm not pleased with you anymore and I'm going to divorce you. And, and so they clarify and they say, is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason? Because she burned dinner that night because she didn't set out clothes for you. And Jesus says, divorce is never okay. And they say, okay, okay, whatever, whatever. But Jesus, why did, why did Moses then talk about a bill of divorcement? And Jesus said, for the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning it was not so, but here's the clarification on this whole bill of divorcement thing in Deuteronomy. That bill of divorcement thing in Deuteronomy only allows for divorce in the case of uncleanness, fornication. That is the one exception in the law. And I marvel at this. 
because the church has used this phrase for a generation now to justify people getting divorced and remarried after somebody, one of the two parties in that relationship is unfaithful. As if by being unfaithful, this then allows them to get a divorce and allows them to remarry before God. No. No. The very premise of Jesus' answer is that the only reason why that existed is because of the hardness of your hearts. And look, folks, if the church is building a doctrinal allowance on the reality of the hardness of our hearts, we're already in the wrong place. Right? I mean, if we're saying divorce and remarriage after fornication even is okay because of what the Bible says, well, the Bible says the only reason why that's there to begin with is because of the hardness of your hearts. So soften your heart and don't justify your sin. But on top of this, you know what else I marvel at? I marvel at the fact that quite often the very same people who use this passage to justify divorce and remarriage are the ones that will tell you, don't you dare try to impose the Mosaic law on me. Don't you dare try to put the Mosaic law on me when the Bible gives the principle that men ought not wear that which pertains unto a woman and women ought not wear that which pertains unto a man. Don't you dare try to impose the law on me when we talk about the moral expectations of God found in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. Don't you dare try to... Now, now I'm not speaking toward those arguments. I'm not speaking toward those tonight. But what I'm saying is, if you argue that you can get divorced and remarried because of this verse, because Jesus says, except for it be for fornication, you are arguing for something that is taught in the Mosaic law. It's found in Deuteronomy 24. And in this passage, you say, yes, but here it's reiterated in the New Testament. No, here Jesus is clarifying what the Old Testament said. What is Jesus actually reiterating in the New Testament? What he's reiterating in the New Testament is that from the beginning, it was not so. What he's reiterating in the New Testament is that There is no cause by which God likes divorce. What he's reiterating in the New Testament is what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. That's what he's actually teaching. The rest of this is clarification of Old Testament law. So if you believe that you can be divorced and remarried under the case of fornication, it's because you are submitting yourself to Old Testament law, not to the New Testament teaching. So why was this put into the law? For the hardness of their hearts. What does that mean? Deuteronomy 24. The condition for divorce was when a man marries a woman and finds no favor with her because of some uncleanness. If he finds an uncleanness with her, he can put her away. But here's the problem. She got married and now she's being put away. And there's a major issue there for a woman because if a woman is not married in that culture, she had no means by which to provide for herself. She couldn't just get divorced and then go and be a single woman working at Walmart. It didn't work that way. She couldn't get a job. She couldn't just go live in society. If she was outside of a husband's protection, she had a couple of options. If her parents would let her, she could go home. If she, if, if she was divorced for uncleanness, that seems unlikely because of the shame. She could just go live poverty-stricken and she could glean out of the fields, kind of like Ruth and Naomi did after, the, uh, after their husbands died. And she could just go and live in poverty and, and glean in the fields and just be a single woman. Or she could sell herself to prostitution, which would often be the case. And so there were not a lot of options for a woman who was divorced. And so God did this to protect the women whether it was that there was uncleanness found in her or whether it was that 
her husband was just a hard-hearted man or a nitwit who decided that he didn't like his wife and was somehow allowed to divorce her, and now she's up a creek because her husband didn't like that she burnt the meal. So God makes a provision in the law that says, let him write out a bill of divorcement. And when he writes out a bill of divorcement, that gives her the right to go get married again so that she can live and so that she doesn't have to sell herself into prostitution or live impoverished for the rest of her life because she had a jerk of a husband for a little while. God made this provision not to give men permission to divorce for any cause or every cause, but rather to protect women from idiot husbands who dump them when they're bored or grumpy. The divorce clause was not a clause of permission for the men to divorce. It was a clause of permission for the women who were being dumped to remarry. It was protection for them. But this wasn't God's will, folks. Jesus says from the beginning it was not so. In light of Deuteronomy 24, Jesus says this is how it works. The only command which actually conforms to the Deuteronomy 24 qualification of divorce, the only one for which a man is actually allowed to divorce his wife, the only one for which a a bill of divorcement is actually allowed to be written is when a wife is unfaithful and thus she loses favor in her husband's eyes. If she's unfaithful, if some uncleanness is found in her but her husband is still willing to be with her, that's fine. We see this kind of a situation with Mary and Joseph. Obviously, Mary was not unfaithful, but she was with child out of wedlock and not of Joseph. And so that's what Joseph was trying to mull over when he was determining whether or not to put her away. Will I write for her a bill of divorcement? We're just betrothed, but will I do this? Will I write for her a bill of divorcement? Will I put her away? Because he could have also had her stoned. As is the case in this. The bill of divorcement was not a requirement. The only cause in which Deuteronomy 24 could validly be applied was when a woman committed adultery. In other cases, he is wrong in putting away his wife under the law, and so he needed to remain married. For him to marry another woman would be to put her away, and then to marry another woman would be to commit adultery with that woman. And for a man to marry the woman who was put away when she was put away under the false pretenses, not under Deuteronomy 24 actual fornication clause, would be for him to commit adultery. And it is important to understand here that this is the second question that Jesus is answering, not the first. When they ask, is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason? Jesus says, it's not okay to divorce your wife for any reason. When they say, well, then why is there this bill of divorcement in Deuteronomy 24? Jesus says, because of the hardness of your hearts, from the beginning it was not so, but as far as Deuteronomy 24 is concerned, just to clarify with you, it's only good for adultery. That's the uncleanness that Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. Now, where does that leave us today? Obviously, we're not under the law. Deuteronomy 24 does not apply to us. Jesus fulfilled the law. What we are under is Jesus' expectation, and the expectation of God is this. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. There's one more passage I want to go to to give us clarification on this. The last major passage of teaching on divorce in the New Testament found in 1 Corinthians 7. Here Paul is writing, encouraging men and women to remain single in that present distress. He says, I encourage you to remain single. If you can be as I, that would be great. In this present distress, don't get married uh, so that they can devote themselves wholly to the Lord. But he understands two things. First, that there are some people that, that can't handle that. 
that they, in doing so, it would cause them undue temptation unto sexual sin, uh, and it would, it would encourage them toward that, so they need to get married so that they can have a proper, biblical, holy, righteous, undefiled outlet for their sexual desire, because that's something God has built into men. There are some people that don't need that. They can, move, they can live just fine without that. There are other people that, that can't live without that, with, without deep tr- problems and temptations. So, so, so get married then so that you can be in the undefiled bed. Because marriage is honorable in all things in the bed undefiled. The other thing that Paul certainly didn't want is he didn't want people who were already married hearing Paul say it's much better to be single because when you're single, you can devote yourself wholly to the Lord. And so husband and wife say, well, then let's get divorced. Or a husband or a wife to say, okay, I just need to divorce you then because I want to devote myself wholly to the Lord. Paul says, don't do that. Don't, don't get divorced if you've already been married. And he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. He says, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, and if or, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So Paul is telling him what the Lord has told him here. When you're married, don't separate, right? We've already established that. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. That's what Jesus said. If you're married, don't separate. And if there must be a separation for whatever reason, and, and here's the thing, folks. Remember, we've said divorce is a messy thing. There are times where divorce happens. There are times where it has to happen. There are times where things happen and people get divorced. If it must happen for whatever reason, because things do happen, we live in a sinful world. Don't remarry, Paul says. Do not remarry unless it is to remarry the divorced spouse. Paul speaks Then to one more unique scenario, but simply put, Paul says this, don't get divorced. If you must get divorced or if you do get divorced, don't remarry unless it's to the same person you were married to before. One more scenario in the next several verses, verses 12 through 16 of 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll discuss this just to be thorough. This is the only other substantive lesson on divorce in the New Testament and the only lesson that's actually given directly to the church. And it is this, don't get divorced. And if you do get divorced, remain unmarried or remarry the divorced spouse, but don't get divorced. That's it. Paul then speaks to an interesting exception. And once again, it's an exception which has been misused in the church. He goes on to say this in verses 12 to 16. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believe not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us unto peace. Unto, God has called us to peace, excuse me. For what knoweth thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or what knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? So Paul says the Lord did not directly give him this teaching. 
However, if you go on to verse 40, Paul says that while Jesus did not directly give him this teaching, he was confident that he spoke it, that he wrote these things with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And obviously today we know that he wrote these with the blessing of the Holy Spirit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it's in our Bibles, which God has preserved for us. So this is the inspired word of God. This is still God teaching here. And Paul gives a scenario where a believing spouse has an unbelieving spouse. This would create particularly when the unbe- when when the believing spouse gets saved after he or she was married this would create tension in the home so imagine that that um paul goes to corinth and he begins preaching the gospel and a woman is walking doing her her duties for the day and she hears paul preach the gospel and she is saved. She accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ and she goes home and she tells her husband and her husband wants nothing to do with it. And now there's an unequal yoking situation and tension begins to arise in the home because this woman is actually drawing closer to her fellow believers than she even is to her husband. And she's acting in a different way. And she's not the man that her husband married anymore. And her husband doesn't actually like it. Uh, we, we hear many accounts of, of a person getting saved and then they're changed in the home. And as they change in the home, their spouse says, I want what you have. But, but, but imagine a scenario where that's not the case. And this happens where the person says, you're not the woman I married anymore. And I don't like this anymore. This is the scenario here that there's tension in the home, in the marriage, because these two who are now, who are one flesh are now entirely different life uh, prior, they have entirely different life priorities and expectations. And it would be natural that, that there would be this great tension in the home that would make both of them miserable. And in these cases, Paul says the believing spouse should never, ever, ever leave the unbelieving spouse. You should maintain the understanding that you are one flesh and you should pursue that marriage with all of your heart. You should never be the one to leave. But if the unbelieving spouse who has no compulsion to obey God's word. They are unbelievers, which means they are, they are everything they do is, is outside of faith and so is sin. If they desire to depart, Paul says, you can let him depart. You don't actually have to fight a divorce. You don't have to beg him to stay. If he wants to leave, you can let him leave. The believer is under no obligation What does that mean? The believer is under no bondage. Many have said, well, that means you can remarry. No, Paul just established in verse 11 that that's not the case. He says, let them remain unmarried. Is Paul really going to say that in verse 11 and then contradict himself a couple verses later? No. What it means is that you're not under bondage to try to keep the marriage together. You're not under constraint to try to keep the marriage together. You don't have to work at it. You can let them depart and you don't even have to feel compelled to reconcile that relationship. You're not under bondage. But if you are willing to stick it out and if you are and 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 if you can make it work, well who knows if your spouse might get saved because of your influence. From the context and the knowledge of God's will, the context is exactly that. That you stay, you don't try to initiate divorce. You are willing to stay, but if they want to leave, you can let them leave without feeling constraint to, to reconcile. And then you remain unmarried, as Paul taught in verses 10 and 11. And that's what the Bible says about divorce. This husband and wife sanctified 
by the spouse. We're not going to talk about that today. I've preached on it before. Um, we'll, we'll talk about it again another day. Continuing, however, in our sermon, we remind ourselves that our passage today does not actually talk about divorce. Jesus is using the example of divorce to call the Pharisees spiritual adulterers. And so now we're going to transition to a new set of application that's going to help us bring our minds back to what is actually being taught in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 18. And application number one, God knows your heart. Jesus told the Pharisees that they were busy attempting to justify themselves before God, but God knows their heart. Most often when you hear someone use this phrase, God knows my heart, it is said because that man is doing something which is indecent, something which is noticeably inappropriate or ungodly, and he's trying to justify his thought or his action by saying, yes, even though it appears really bad, God knows my heart. Even though you're calling me a slob or you're calling me immoral or you're calling me this or you're calling me that, God knows my heart. Basically, they're saying that their actions aren't a reflection of their heart, that God knows that I love him even though I'm not living like it. If we can use an illustration that will keep it in context, most of the people who use this phrase are like a man having an adulterous relationship and when his wife confronts him, he says, sure, I'm cheating on you, but you know I love you, right? Well, that's not how it works. James says, show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Love and its evidences are indivisible. The amount that I love my wife is evidenced by my actions. And my actions are evidenced of my feelings for my wife. So then, yes, indeed. My love for my wife is clearly seen by my adulterous actions. It's clear that I don't love her as much as I say I do. I might have feelings for her, but love is a choice to do what is best for the object of that love, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. Can I truly say that I have that love in my heart if it's not coming out? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, Jesus says. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you seek to justify yourself before men, but here's the thing, God knows your heart. Rather than use this phrase as an excuse to commit sinful acts and still try to claim loyalty to God, let's understand this for what it really means, that God sees our heart. That means no matter how hard you try to fool anyone else with your piety or your religious actions or your moral words, God knows exactly what you are in your heart. God knows the dirty words and the crass thoughts and the ulterior motives. And this knowledge does not lend us a license to sin. Quite the contrary, this knowledge should make us ever more vigilant of not just our actions, but the very thoughts of our heart. But be encouraged because, you know, it means something else as well. That when you're doing right and the people in the church and the people all around you are teasing you or saying that you're not doing right or calling you names, calling you legalist, calling you holier than thou, calling you whatever just because you're trying to do what's right, you can know this as well, that no matter what those people say, God knows your heart. So let it be an encouragement to you who are doing right. God knows your heart. God is merciful. God is long-suffering. God loves you. God knows your heart. Number two, what man values, God finds abominable. The Pharisees were so fixated on what men love, outward adorning, financial success, moral excellence, strength, power, honor, reputation. It had become their God. 
It was these that they fought for when they felt threatened. It was these that they sought unto for comfort and security. And it is these that God says mean absolutely nothing to him. God does not look down upon this earth impressed by rich men, powerful men, honorable men. God's not impressed because you're a New York Times bestseller. God's not impressed because you are a church leader. God's not impressed because you are a pastor. God's not impressed because you are fill in the blank. These are not the things that impress God. What is God impressed with? Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17 helps us with this. David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And he says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do you know what impresses God? If God were making trophies, which he is in heaven, if God were making statues to put around the, the kingdom of, of God, which of course would just be of him, but you see what I'm saying here? Man makes trophies. Man writes the history books. Man builds the statues. And who does man build the statues to? Warriors, violent men, revolutionaries. If God were building the statues, he would build the statues of a man who is man enough to swallow his pride and humble himself. He'd build the statues of the man who's willing to give up his dreams for God's will. He'd build statues of the man who's man enough to stop trying to do things his way and do things God's way. That's what impresses God. This is what makes God happy. This is what earns men favor with God. Faith unfeigned. No false pretense, no hypocrisy, simplicity and godly sincerity. God resists the proud, James says, but gives grace to the humble. And man rejects these things. Man sees humility as weakness, meekness as a waste, selflessness as a parody of humanity. But while man sees the outward appearance, God sees the heart. So where are you today? Are you so caught up in appearances that you have failed to humble yourself before God? Are you so busy trying to look godly before this church that you won't ask a fellow believer for help when you need accountability? Are you so busy trying to feed your pride that you won't listen to God? Are you so busy trying to win or get rich or obtain honor that the principles of the word of God regarding love and faith and humility and submission and obedience and temperance have no place in your life? Quit trying to impress your spouse or your neighbor or your church or your pastor and get busy trying to impress God. And that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. So how are you going to do it? You're going to do it by conforming yourself to the image of Christ. God knows your heart. Second, what man values, God finds abominable. Third and finally, spiritual adultery is exactly that. It's adultery. To whatever degree we follow the paths of this world, to whatever degree we entertain the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is the degree to which we are being unfaithful to God. A God who has bought us, a God who has blessed us, a God who has loved us. Are, is there spiritual unfaithfulness in your life? What actions and feelings and thoughts in any given day reveal that you are walking in some measure of unfaithfulness to our Lord? And if the Holy Spirit is showing you something, may I encourage you tonight to give it to Him? Why? Because we give it to Him, we get right with Him, and then we walk in joy, unspeakable and full of glory. 
because it's the way God has designed us to live. Because on this day, Jesus said there's two different choices here. There's God and there's mammon, and you cannot serve them both. And if you're serving mammon, in whatever capacity you're serving mammon, it's because you're not serving God. Likewise, to whatever degree you're serving God, you're not serving mammon. It all stems from what Jesus said in verse 13. You cannot serve God and mammon. Are you serving mammon today? Can you do what God will not despise and humble yourself before him? Align your heart with him. Get rid of that mammon and make God first place. That's the call this evening for us, that we would serve God and not mammon, that we would be faithful to God's expectation. Let's close in prayer.